You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. To the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, are the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. And the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we come at this time and we are most grateful for your word and your law. And we pray that your law would teach us and we would learn from it. That it would, as the scriptures tell us, be a light into our paths. That your people would be sanctified for having heard and read it. And that sinners would be saved as the law cuts their hearts and points them to Jesus Christ. Oh God, give me power as I preach. Give me unction and would you anoint the hearing and preaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in this series on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is the natural law. It's the law of nature. And... It is, meaning it's really, it's the constitution of reality. If you want to live in reality, you live by the Ten Commandments. If you want to live against reality and against nature, you live against the Ten Commandments. And so, you're going against the grain of nature if you're going against the Ten Commandments, and you're going with the grain of nature if you're going with the Ten Commandments. And I've walked through Commandments 1 through 6 now including the prologue. And so we have, um, 
or the preamble. So we've looked at the preamble and we've looked at commandments one through six. And the last time that I preached, we looked at the seventh commandment. I introduced you to the seventh commandment, which is the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And one of the things that I've tried to emphasize in looking at the Ten Commandments and attempting to teach you how to interpret them is that in interpreting the Ten Commandments, there's multiple points of application, right? And one of the points of application is that when there's a negative commandment, so a prohibition, you shall not, the opposite directive or positive is true. So when it says you shall not commit adultery, the opposite of that is demanded. So if it says you shall not commit adultery, then what's the opposite that's demanded? Well, you shall esteem marriage. You shall seek the goodness of marriage. You shall delight in marriage. And even you shall be intimate within the context of marriage. If you shall not commit adultery, all of these things apply. And so I'm going to spend a little while here talking about marriage, preaching on marriage over these next few weeks. The positive aspect, the directive aspect of the prohibition. So as opposed to focusing on the you shall not, which I did last time we were together, and I might yet do again, I am going to spend much time on the you shall. So last time we were together, I talked about the you shall not, how it applies within all the various different categories. You shall not look at porn. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit sodomy. You shall not be a pedophile. Like all of these things fall under the category of the seventh commandment, okay? All sexual immorality is prohibited by the seventh commandment is what I'm trying to say. But I want to talk today about the positive aspect of the commandment. And I've already spoken so much within the context of not only this series, but within my entire preaching ministry and even some of the writing I've done. I've spoken so much haranguing against and condemning the trash. And I think rightfully, and I don't want to stop doing that. There's a ton that has to be said on that. But one of the ways that we deal with the trash, if people like to eat garbage, well, why don't you present to them what a really wholesome dinner looks like, right? So if people are, are, enjoy eating rotten trash out of the garbage, which apparently our society does, and they don't just enjoy eating rotten trash out of the garbage, they enjoy doing it with their mouths open and showing you what's inside, okay? And what we don't want to do is start forgetting about the condemnations against such behavior. But what I want to talk about today is, is really what is the positive here and paint a beautiful picture of what marriage is. So the bulk of this sermon, I'm going to present to you a beautiful picture of what marriage is. And I have two headings, two headings. Number one, two assertions. Marriage is beautiful. And number two, marriage has a design. And what I'm trying to do today is just give you a vision for what marriage is. I think this is missed. In, in, in the haranguing against the evil, 
we ought not forget the positive beauty of God's design. And so that's what I hope to do this morning with God's help. And then, after I preach this sermon and the sermon or sermons to come, I hope to talk about how to cultivate such a beautiful marriage. How to cultivate such a beautiful marriage. So if a garden is supposed to be beautiful, that garden has to be cultivated, right? It just doesn't happen. That when, when you leave the garden on its own, it's, it's wild. And the weeds start to choke up the beautiful flowers. And the same is true with a marriage. A marriage has to be cultivated. If you want a beautiful marriage, it has to be cultivated. Well, today I'm going to talk about the beauty of the marriage and the design of the marriage. So marriage is beautiful and marriage has a design. And then in the week or weeks to come, I'm going to, God willing, talk about the cultivation of a beautiful marriage. That's what I hope to focus on over the next little while. There's so much confusion on this and so much bad teaching and so much assumptions that it's worth spending some time on. So my first heading is this. My first assertion is this. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is beautiful. Now, the last song that we had sung was, um, before we sang the psalm, was Amazing Grace. And Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. And so I want to read to you what John Newton said about marriage, as I talk about the beauty of marriage. And this was his own personal testimony. Marriage has been and is to me the best and dearest of, a temporal, of temporal blessings. Long experience and much observation has convinced me or have convinced me that the marriage state, when properly formed and prudently conducted, affords the nearest approach to happiness of merely temporal kind that can be attained in this uncertain world in which will a best, best abide the test of sober reflection. The greatest of temporal blessings is marriage, when it's properly entered upon and diligently, and diligently cultivated. Marriage is the best of temporal blessings. I, I agree that, not, with that, not just by observation, from what I've seen in people's lives. But I agree with that on the basis of my own experience, that this is the best of temporal blessings. It's a beautiful thing. You have someone to talk to whenever you want, someone to comfort whenever they need comfort, someone to be comforted by. Whenever you need comfort, someone to teach, someone to learn from, someone to crack, someone to be corrected by, someone to work with, Someone to spend a lifetime getting to know and be known by somebody to build a life with. This is really a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, and I don't think there is a greater earthly gift than marriage. And I, I got married by way of personal testimony. I was married when I was 19, and so I'd been out of high school year. My wife had been out of high school year, and we got married at 19, and I have a major regret about that, one major regret, huge. Do you want to know what it is? It's that I didn't get married at 18. 
okay? So it has been a wonderful blessing to me, and uh, it's been 22 years now that we have gotten to know each other, and you get to know each other better and better every day. Marriage is a great blessing, and I don't think there is a greater earthly gift. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to jump around in the scriptures a little bit, because what, I, what I'm assuming here, and I, hope, and I know rightly, and I hope you understand this by now, is that the Ten Commandments are representing something. They're representing the body of scripture. And so in stating the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, this is summarizing teaching that happens from front, from cover to cover in the Bible. From cover to cover in the Bible. It's summarizing cover to cover teaching. And so I want to start now as I describe the beauty of marriage. I want to start with the first wedding. I want to start with the first wedding. And everything in the book of Genesis, you can turn there. It's very easy to find. Genesis chapter 1 is the first chapter in the Bible. And so you can turn there. And everything in Genesis, as I paint the picture of the beauty of marriage, was good. Was good. And so, except one thing. Because God created the world, there's no sin in it. And everything in the creation was good. So Genesis 1 verse 4, what does it say? It says, and God said, or sorry, and God saw that the light was, say it with me, good. See, everything's good. And then Genesis 1 verse 10, at the end of the verse, and God saw, he created the earth, the waters, and so on, the seas, and God saw that it was good. See how this goes? Everything's good here. It's all good. At the end of verse 18, it talks about the day and the night, and God saw that it was good, right? Good, 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 good. Verse 21, similarly, God creates the creatures, and God saw at the end of it that it was good. So you get the point here? Everything's good. It's a good world that God created because there was no sin. Verse 25, and God saw that it was good. Verse 31, Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it wasn't just good, it was very good. Very good. And so this is the creation account. We have the assertion that everything's good except for one thing. And that's found in verse 18 of chapter 2. There's one thing in the creation account a world without sin that is not good. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then God, then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Everything's good. Everything's good until that passage. And the one thing that's not good is that the man's on his own. And so what does God promise to do? He promises to solve this problem and to make it good. And so what is it that God does? He promises to make a helper for him. In verse 18 of Genesis 2, he promises to make a helper. 
And, and so <laughs> you got to follow this passage because it's actually kind of humorous. In, in verse 18, God says, it's not good that man's alone. I'll make a helper for him. And then in verse 19 through 22, it's got to be like the most drawn out passage in all of Scripture. Like, I don't know if there's a passage in the whole Bible where there's more anticipation than verses 19 through 22. Because in verse 18, God promises a wife for Adam. And some of you who are single, you can relate to this. Who is it? When am I going to meet her? Or ladies, when am I going to find him, right? It's this anticipation. Or even as, you, as the days come up for the wedding, there's a great anticipation for the wedding. And every day that goes by before the wedding seems like 10 years, right? And so God promises in verse 18 that he's going to make a helper for man. And verse 19 through 22 are the most drawn out passages in the whole Bible. Because you look at verse 19. He, God promises in verse 18 he's going to make a helper. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So could you imagine this poor Adam? This poor Adam, he's a full-grown, red-blooded male, okay? And God says to him, I'm going to make you a helper. And Adam's sitting there, oh, good, right? I get to have a helper. And then God brings him an elephant. <laughs> like, did his heart sink? Right? Or, or how about, and then, and then, okay, that's not it. But I'll name it elephant. And then he brings him a cow, and then a beaver, and then a rat, right? Like all of these things are paraded. Like how many animals did Adam see? And, and so you ha I hope you understand the humor almost that's within the passage or at least how drawn out this passage is. Like, yeah, and Adam has to name them all. And, and he's not, that's not it, God. No, no, I didn't intend that one to be it, Adam, but still name it, please, Right? And so Adam is, this is being drawn out, and it, it goes on and on and on and on, and Adam is naming every one of them. And then you get to verse 21. He gives name to all the livestock in verse 20. And then verse 21, finally, you get to this anticipated point. Oh, here comes the helper. And God puts Adam basically under a general anesthetic to get the gift. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And then in verse 22, or sorry, I just read verse, no. And then rib, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So you can only imagine the joy of Adam. Uh, he, like he's been looking at every form of animal for how long? He's never seen a woman in his life. And all of a sudden, God presents his beautiful wife to him. And, like, what was the look on Adam's face at that point? How many have been to a wedding, and, and instead of looking at the bride coming through the doors, you look at the face of the husband? Because you want to see, you know, his reaction of joy when he sees his beautiful bride 
walk through the door. Well, I mean, what was Adam's face like? The first time, and it's not only that, he's seen animal after animal, and he's named animal after animal, and he's been promised that he would have this helper, and he'd never seen a woman before, and then, boom, right there is this beautiful woman. And then God says, she's yours, right? And so you see the, the beauty of marriage illustrated in this. At last, verse 23, look at it says, you can see why. Adam opens his sentence in verse 23. Then the man said, this at last, right, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And he couldn't have imagined how beautiful this creature was, and there she is in front of him, brought to her, or brought to him by God. And this tells us something about weddings, doesn't it? What happens in the wedding? Who brings the bride to the, the groom? It's the father, right? And so the father, in bringing the bride to the groom, is standing in a long tradition of fathers who have brought their daughters to grooms, and that tradition started in the Garden of Eden. So it's not the mother and the father that bring the daughter down the aisle. It's not the mother and the father that give the daughter away. It's the father, the covenantal head of the household. And in this case, it was God himself who gave the daughter away. And, and she's, he gives them to the man. Okay, And this is the first wedding. It's a beautiful picture that we have portrayed before us of everything being good except for one thing, and then finally, God promises that he's going to make that one thing that's not good, good. And then slowly builds the anticipation and remedies the problem with the good woman being presented to the good man. There's one more passage I want to look at to illustrate just very quickly the, the beauty of marriage. I've preached on this passage at at least one other wedding that I'd done, and I think it, it really portrays not just the beauty of marriage, but the beauty of, um, I think, romance and the lady meeting her husband, the groom meeting his, his bride. And that's in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 3. And I'm going to skim over this, or chapter 2 and chapter 3. And Song of Solomon is a little harder to find, but it's near the middle of your Bible. And so if you find Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, if you hit Isaiah and Jeremiah, you've gone too far. All right? But this is another passage that illustrates the beauty of marriage. Song of Solomon's, Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and 3. And in chapter 2, verse 8, you, you get the sense that the bride is dreaming of this husband of hers, this groom. And, you know, women, young ladies like to do this. They like to dream about the man that will marry them, marry her, and the wedding, and all this other stuff. And so the, she's, she's getting kind of dreamy about him. And in chapter 2, verse 8, the bride dreams of a man who is like a strong, wild stallion leaping through the mountains. So this is a dream. And what does she say in verse 8 of chapter 2? The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, what? 
leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle, a young stag, right? And so he's, he's energetic, he's strong. He, there's not a mountain that's going to keep him between him and his bride-to-be, and nothing is going to stop his attraction towards her. And if he has to jump over mountains, he will, right? And so he does. And then the dream becomes somewhat of a reality in verse 6, where the groom arrives of chapter 3. Down to chapter 3, the groom arrives in verse 6. And when he arrives, he arrives as a warrior king with an entourage of soldiers riding on horseback with swords strapped to their sides. All right, this is like a fairy tale, Okay. And so it says in verse 6 of chapter 3, what is that? Right? So, oh, he's, here he is. What is that coming from the wilderness like columns of smoke? So you know how you can see smoke? If, if the land's flat, you can see smoke miles away. Or you can, if it's up in the mountains that the smoke is coming, you can see the smoke rising from the mountains. Well, if you have a, a group of men riding horses, you could see the dust rising like smoke. And so this builds anticipation. Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So while the man is a warrior, and he's coming with his brothers in arms, who he fights with, he's, you could say he cleaned himself up okay. Because he's not going to war at this point. He's going to meet his princess, and so that, that ought to be a cue for some of you guys. If you, ought to, if you want to meet a woman and find a wife, maybe you ought to clean yourself up a little bit. All right? Maybe you ought to clean yourself up a little bit. Because this guy says, I see, I, I'm coming to meet my woman, I'm coming to meet my bride, and so he knows that he better be properly groomed when he does so. And some of you guys can take some cues from King Solomon at this point. All right? And as the man is coming here, it says, Behold, in verse 4, or verse 7, Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. So these are very masculine men. And it's the leader of the masculine men that is coming to meet the bride. These are fighting men. And these are dangerous men. Dangerous towards not the bride, but towards the enemies of the bride. And those who would seek to harm the bride. And so these dangerous men come galloping over the hills... They're, they're, they're rugged men, but they've cleaned themselves up. He's got his boys to clean themselves up, and he's cleaned himself up so he can go and meet the ladies, or at least his lady. And he sees her, this wild soldier, this leader of men, carrying a sidearm, riding on horseback over mountains. He finds the woman that he has been looking for. And then at look at verse 1 of chapter 4. This, this is a cue, guys. 
on how to talk to a lady. Look at what he says. And the ladies' hearts, are they like melt over this. After the anticipation comes and the man rides over the mountains on horseback, and look at what he says. He's not speaking words of war to this beautiful woman. He says, behold, you are beautiful. It's the first word he says to her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. And then he goes into great description about her feminine beauty. And then in verse 9, in the same chapter, he says, You have captivated my heart. Like, you think about this guy and, and the compliments that he's lavishing upon this woman. And it's not charm. He literally means it. And so, what I've tried to do here in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Song of Solomon 2 and 3 and 4, is I've tried to, from Scripture, paint a picture for you of the beauty of marriage. This isn't some... Um, pie-in-the-sky, romantic, hypothetical situation. This is on the pages of Scripture themselves. This is God's design for marriage to be beautiful, for marriage to be full of joy, for marriage to be desirable, right? And to the point where Song of Solomon, or Solomon, rather, he's the king of Israel during Israel's most prosperous time, Solomon it says to the sons of Israel in Proverbs chapter 19 verse, or 18 verse 22, he says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and abstains, obtains favor from the Lord. So you see that? So guys, you should be thankful for your good thing. And you ladies, you are your husband's good thing. He, you, are, you are the Lord's favor upon your husband and your wife is God's favor upon you. Now, there's other passages in Proverbs that we can talk about another time that talk about a nagging wife and all this other stuff, but we're not going to talk about that today. Okay? We're, we're focusing on the positive vision here. Or even in Proverbs 19, verse 14, King Solomon can say, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. She's a gift of God. And this was the only thing that was not good in the Garden of Eden. And God makes it good by providing a wife for Adam. And so what have I done here? I've tried to, I've attempted to, paint a picture of the goodness and the beauty of marriage. Because we hear a lot of negativity. And it's more acceptable in some circles to say, bad things about your wife than good things about your wife, or bad things about your husband than good things about your husband. But the Bible normalizes the goodness and beauty of marriage. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what I want you to see. God's design for marriage is beautiful. That's what I want to assert to you today. His design. You know, men start to get their... Ways people start to think their own little depraved thoughts, then it gets ugly. But God's design is beautiful. God's design is beautiful. And so marriage is beautiful. What is the design? Let's talk about that. My next point. Marriage has a design. 
Marriage has a design. There's a design to this, and the design should be coming obvious as I have talked about these two stories. There's a big difference between men and women. It's not the man sitting around dreaming that a burly woman will jump over the hills <laughs> with her burly girlfriends with a sword strapped to her side. Dude, if that's you, <laughs> you got problems, right? This is not what's happening. There's, there's a great distinction here between men and women, all right? And this should be plainly obvious to you. Both these stories indicate that men and women are different. So let me just talk about some of the differences. God designed men hard and women soft. In fact, the Bible condemns softness in men. And so if the Bible condemns softness in men, it condemns hardness in women. God designed men hard and women soft. God designed men strong and women beautiful. God designed men to give and women to nurture what men give to them. This happens everywhere. In, in every, when the home is functioning properly, this is, this is how it functions properly. You want one distinction that you can sum it all up in. The man gives and the woman nurtures. But even, in, even in the act of intimacy and in the conception of a child, the man gives the seed and the woman nurtures the seed to life in her womb. Right? The man brings the material goods home and the woman nurtures them into tasty meals and a beautiful home. The man gives and the woman nurtures. The man protects, he's designed to protect, the woman is designed to be secure. Women need to have a sense of security. Men are okay with risk and danger, especially if that risk and danger is risk and danger in order to protect their families. Okay? Men are designed to lead and women are designed to follow by God's grace. Men are designed to provide and women are designed to beautify. Now, this, this is a... I told you I wouldn't spend much time on the... Negative, and so I'm not going to, but just a little bit of negative, just a little bit, not much, like a sentence. This world is backwards, isn't it? It's a day of androgyny that celebrates effeminate men and butchy women, okay? And this is wrong. Women need to be encouraged, and they themselves need to cultivate femininity, and men need to be encouraged to cultivate masculinity. And in this backwards world, it seems quite often, as you look around, the opposite is true. But it's the masculine virtues, the men need to be intentional in cultivating them, and the feminine virtues, the females need to be cultivated or encouraged to cultivate the feminine virtues. Because there is a distinction, and the distinction must be embraced if you desire to embrace God's design. It must be embraced. There is a great inversion going on right now that denies the perfection of God's design. But back to the Genesis story again, the beauty of it. 
where we learn about these differences within the design. I'm talking about the design, right? The differences of the design. The man was, listen to the differences. Just pay attention here. I'll give you, I'll give you five of them. And they're not going to be on the screen, but pay attention. Five differences that are obvious within the Genesis account. Man was created first, then the woman. Man was created first, then the woman. Therefore, he's the leader. That's number one. Number two. The woman was created for the man, not the man for the woman. There's difference number two. Look at what it says in chapter 2. Verse 18, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The woman was created for the man, not for the woman. Number three difference. The man named the woman, not the woman the man. Genesis 2 verse 23, what's it say? The man said, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Or Genesis 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. The man named the woman, not the woman the man. And in fact, it says, God made man male and female. So male and female together bear the title man. And this is why a woman should take her husband's name. Because... In taking her husband's name, she's following the biblical pattern of allowing her husband to name her. He is the head of the household. He has authority over the home. And I don't know why people don't do this in our feminist age. Well, I kind of know why, but what they want to do is, instead of saying, well, I don't want to take a man's name, I'd rather have my husband's father-in-law's name. If you followed me. I'd rather have, right? That's what it is. So, well, what's that communicating to the husband? The man named the woman. The woman didn't name the man. Right? And here, but look at this. So I've talked about the male authority and the headship of the household. And if you guys are starting to, you know, feel, look at, I'm not, no. Because that's not going on here. Because the man, my fourth point, was a gentleman. Right? What does it say in Genesis 2, verse 23? This at last is bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Look, at, he doesn't say you are woman. He says she shall be called woman. He speaks in passive terms. He's being gentle in his naming of her. He named her in the passive tense, not the active tense, because he's being, he can look at the elephant and say, you are an elephant, or look at the bird and say, you are a bird, but he looks at the woman and says, she shall be called woman. Is a sign of great respect for her. So take your cues from this. Gentlemen, she's not your buddy, right? One of the things that you observe with men is they insult each other if they really like each other. I assure you, your wife is not that way. <laughs> if women like each other, they tend to talk about the nice things about each other. Oh, you're so pretty. I love your eyes, right? That's woman talk. <laughs> but if, if you want to treat your woman well who took your name, 
You don't talk to her like you talk to a man. You talk to her as she is a woman. And the man speaks to the woman with a level of gentleness and kindness. There's no harshness here. And I've seen this even in this church. Men speak of their wives or to their wives harshly. You are an evil man if you speak to your wife harshly. God designed you to be a gentleman and she designed her to be treated by a gentleman as a lady. As a lady. And so you have these two parallel views here. On one side, you've got this whole feminist movement that just wants to beat men into the ground. I am woman, hear me roar, like all this garbage, right? She, she, she wants to be empowered, but the only way she can be empowered is if a man empowers her, right? And so she wants to be empowered, feminism. But, but then you have the whole chauvinism movement. I used to have Muslim neighbors when we lived in Cambridge, and I remember the neighbor was talking to my wife. The lady was talking to my wife, and she told my wife that the Islamic religion believes that the women are lower than plant life. By a Muslim woman. Well, that's not the Christian view of things. Okay? The Christian view of things is the woman is the queen of the house. She's the queen of the garden. And the queen deserves great respect and to be treated with great honor. And you ought not be cutting or derogatory or rude or harsh with your wife. So that's the fourth point. The man was a gentleman. The man was created first, then the woman. The woman was created for the man, not the man for the woman. The man named the woman, not the woman the man. The man was a gentleman, and here's the fifth and final observation I want to make of this. The man sacrificed for the woman's life, not the woman for the man's life. The man sacrificed for the woman's life, not the woman for the man's life. Genesis 2, verse 21 through 23. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Well, the man is the leader. The Christian view of leadership is that leadership entails a sacrifice in the responsibility. It's not tyranny. It is leadership at the expense of his own good. So if you want to sign up to be a husband, what you're saying is you are putting yourself between your wife and your family in the world. That's leadership. And if the world wants to declare war on your family, they're going to have to walk over your dead body. Matthew Henry commented on this so beautifully. He said, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, not of his feet, to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side, to be equal with him, under his arm, to be protected by him, and near to his heart, to be beloved by him. Just take that in for a minute. That, that does away with so many of the ill-conceived ideas of marriage right there, on the man and woman's side. And embrace that. Jewish scholar Umberto Casuto said, just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper, counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. All things are to be in common. I don't understand this business of 
How, how can you be in a home and be married together and operate together as a unit and oneness and have different bank accounts? This makes no sense to me. Well, what she, she earns is hers and what he earns is his. You're just creating a division right in your home. You are together, right? Separate bedrooms or separate beds. This apparently is a trend in some places to build separate bedrooms. I don't understand this. This makes no sense to me. How can you have... I don't understand how in, in a home you could have people with opposing political views. How does that go on? Husband and wife fight over who's gonna, who they're going to vote for. You know? Like, the, there should be a unity and a love. I mean, I, I, I can't even stand, I just tell you personally, I can't even stand a king size bed. I'm just going to tell you. Where's my wife? Where'd she go? <laughs> you know, we were in Calgary a little while ago, and we had a king-sized bed. I thought I lost her every night. <laughs> she ran off to the mountains. Where did she go? Then I roll over. Oh, she's there, right? It's, you know, there's a oneness here. This is two people becoming one, man and woman to become one, cleaving together, starting a new family unit together, leaving their parents together. Right? Like, at the, before you're married, your most important relationship is the one with your parents. After you're married, your parents are now secondary because the most important relationship is with your wife or your husband. There's a new unit that started. Every relationship is inferior to the marital relationship. Well, and it says it right in Genesis. Right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's a line between the parents and the married here. But, but let me just get into some more application as I wrap this up, just how it really gets practical in a nuts and bolts kind of way. So the man is over the wife as Christ is over the church. The Bible says that it's very clear. The man gave his rib for the woman. This is very clear. And therefore, the man's job is to provide. Look at this quote. This is really good. James Angle James, or John Angle James. It is yours, my brethren, speaking to the men, pay attention. It is yours, my brethren, to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of carefulness, and to drink, if necessary, the waters of affliction, that you may earn, by the sweat of your brow, a comfortable support for the domestic circle. Right? This means that the husband has a level of toughness that he is using to help his family so that his wife doesn't have to enter the workforce and provide for the home. It's putting a massive onus on the man. That's what it's doing. And, and this is a soft culture of soft men that we live in. Some guys, you shake their hands and it's like shaking a dead fish, you know? But there's... There's an onus on the man, and, and this is a difficult world, I understand this, to buy a house, and there's all kinds of inflationary times that we're, do, that we're dealing with right here, but you know, you ought to train your sons to save their money as teenagers so they have a solid nest egg if they want to start a family. Don't let your children be idle. This is a time to prepare for adulthood. And 
I, like, I, I just think the whole idea of sending your wives back into the workforce after they have babies, it's so unnatural. Right? The, the man's the one that's supposed to go out and kill something and bring it home. And then she beautifies it. She makes it smell and taste good when he brings it home. Men, the, the financial burden to provide is on the man. It's not hers, and it's not the government's. It's yours. The man gives, and the woman nurtures. She decorates. She prepares food. She is the one who conceives the child, or the child is conceived in her. She is the nurturer. I've seen guys go into debt so that they can buy an engagement ring for their fiance, then the minute they get married, she's out working to pay off the ring. Well, that's not manhood. The whole idea of a ring is that you're proving that you're man enough to afford something. You get out there and you get a job and you make it happen. Okay? And if you can't provide for a family, you have no business pursuing a woman. And like, I, I got to, when, when we had kids, we had, I remember we had three kids, I was in seminary, living in the United States, and I remember thinking, we, we have these babies at home, my, my, I tell you, my seminary time was the most stressful time of my life, I think probably even worse than the lockdowns, I'll be honest with you. But my wife looks back on that time and she says it was the least stressful time of her life. Well, I'm really thankful for that. You know, but by God's grace, I remember thinking to myself, if I can't pay the bills, there's no way I'm sending my wife out to work. I'm going to quit seminary, and what I'm going to do, I don't care if I've got to get a job putting toilet mints in urinals. I don't care. That's, that's what a man does. If I've got to get two jobs. Now, some, now, there's exceptions to this, obviously. If someone is disabled or whatever, this is in the providence of God, and it just can't happen. But under normal circumstances, the man should feel the weight and there should not be tolerance in the church for men who don't. It should be normal for men in the church to kind of jump on a guy who doesn't feel the weight. He should feel very uncomfortable in the church until he repents. And then you add to this, the wife's heart is for the home. And so Titus chapter 2, verses 3 for 4, it says, Older women, likewise, it'll be on the screen, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, are slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, so train what? The young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Working at home that the word of God may not be reviled. A Christian wife who is a career woman is a complete contradiction. Now this, if you desire to get married and have kids, ladies, this should influence your way of thinking as you pursue a career. Right now. There's nothing wrong with a woman or even a mother of children earning money. That's not what I'm against. Proverbs 31 commends that, the cottage industries that are developed within the context of homemaking. But it cannot interfere with her nesting, her cooking, her, her family's healthy meals, her decorating, her heart for the home. The idea of the Bible is that the woman's heart is in the home. 
And don't let anyone tell you that's demeaning. So people want to say, oh, where's the women's ministry in this church? Uh, they're making their husbands meals. They're clothing their children. They're decorating their homes. There's the women. Why, why can't women be in ministry at Trinity Bible Chapel? Oh, there's a lot of them in ministry. Trust me. Trust me. I had a great breakfast this morning. And I, I like to think that maybe you're benefiting from it. My woman's ministry at my home. I say that seriously. Okay? This is women's ministry. Is the home. How good has the feminist movement been? It's been wonderful, hasn't it? Everyone's equal now. Women don't have to submit to their husbands anymore. They go to work to submit to someone else's husband. Right? So all, all as I'm saying is, is, look, I'm not opposed to women making money. In fact, I think this is something that is cultivated in a Christian home as a woman develops a cottage industry. And eventually does make money. But her heart is in the home. And it is a beautiful thing when it happens properly. And in fact, I've been in homes where the woman is not in the home. She's a career woman. And immediately, the minute you walk in the door, it's in the air. You can see it in the decorations. You can see it in how people interact. There's a coldness there. Every time, bar none. Every time. You can walk into a house right away and tell by the decorations, by the, tell by the way people are interacting, tell by the smell of food in the air and what's in the cupboards, whether that house is a home or it's just a house. And if it's a home, it's a woman who's made it a home. Okay? Now, I've... Um, when a mom's heart is in the home, it's beautiful. That's what I'm trying to say here. She earnestly sees herself as the servant of the husband and the children, and the husband sees himself as a servant of the family by going out and providing what is necessary to create a home. Now, in these inflationary times, and in these times in which we live, that might mean that your home isn't as elaborate as your parents' home. But I remind you that our ancestors lived in huts. I always tell, I try to tell my kids this a lot. My ancestors came here in, I think it was the 1630s, and lived in a hut in the woods in Quebec. And the first Rayom matriarch had like 15 kids in that hut, without central heating in the winter of Quebec. So look, she made a home. It wasn't elaborate, but she made a home. And that was her ministry. And so this is, this is, the domestic vision, and it's a beautiful vision. The man earnestly sees himself as the provider and the protector. He carries that weight, and the natural hardness of the man and the natural softness of the woman is used to complement each other and come together, and then that natural hardness, when it is used to serve the home, and that natural softness, when it is used to serve the home, when they come together in love, it perfumes the home. And you see it. It perfumes it. He lovingly cares for her, and she lovingly follows him. And this is a beautiful thing. When it is done properly, I promise you, when it is done properly, I promise you, there is nothing more beautiful this side of heaven. And when it's done improperly, I don't think there's anything more ugly this side of heaven. 
but we're talking about the beauty today. We're talking about the beauty. This is a beautiful thing, and it's a beautiful thing because this is what God designed, and it's glorious, and his design is perfect. It's perfect, and it's beautiful because it points to the one who is truly beautiful, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died to take a bride, just as there was a rib taken out of Adam's side, so there was a spear shoved in Jesus' side so that Jesus himself could purchase a bride. And it all points to that. But that's what I have to say today. And we'll have prayer, and then next week we'll talk about cultivating this beauty in your home. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us and your kindness towards us. And we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us, and we pray that you would help us to reflect that in our lives. The goodness of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Bless the homes in this church. Where there is sin, I pray that they would find forgiveness in Christ and the guilt would be removed by our dear Savior who loves us. And there would be peace because of the cross. In his name we pray. Amen.